The number 22 Florida Gators go on the road and suffer an excruciatingly tough loss for the third straight time to the Kentucky Wildcats. Tonight, we get into all of what's going on inside the Gator football program, what went wrong up in Lexington, and what the Gators need to do to get back on track. This is the In All Kinds Weather Forecast. And welcome in to another episode of the In All Kinds Weather Forecast, a rather somber recap of the Kentucky game that what we will have tonight. But we are going to get into all of the issues going on inside the Florida Gator football program, all phases of the game on the field, as well as coaching decisions that led to the beatdown of 33-14 to to the Kentucky Wildcats. The third straight time the Kentucky Wildcats have defeated the Florida Gators and the first time since 19. 19- 50 that the Florida Gators have now lost three in a row to the Wildcats. That was the last time Kentucky also went on a four game win streak that went from 1948 to 1951. So once again, history made against the Florida Gators and not the greatest of ways. And this game did not get off to a great start whatsoever. The first drive for Florida was bad a penalty that stopped the drive after Florida actually converted on a third and 15 Kentucky pretty much won this game in the first quarter, scoring 16 unanswered points in the first quarter. Florida not scoring until right before halftime, and then only one more time in the second half, falling 33-14. to Ray Davis, who many Gator fans will remember from last year, had a career day once again against the Florida Gators piling up 280 yards on 26 carries, three touchdowns. He also added a touchdown through the air on a screen pass that went for nine yards where he basically drug several Florida defenders in the end zone with him. On the offensive side, it was even worse. Florida put up one of its worst rushing performances in the Billy Napier era, 69 yards of rushing. The only one that was worse was the Utah game to start the season. Montrell Johnson, 42 yards on the ground. Trevor Etienne, 29. Not going to get it done with this style of offense that Billy Napier likes to run. Graham Mertz, highly efficient once again. But as we're seeing the common theme is that even when Graham Mertz is efficient and throws for over uh, 200 yards, uh, this one he threw for 244 and two touchdowns, it does not matter. The Florida Gators' identity is to be able to run the football. And when they cannot do that, they will lose the game. So this was pretty much deja vu all over again of the Utah game. To be honest, it might have been even worse. It could have been even worse. It had it not been for several drops by Kentucky receivers throughout the game. But the Gators fall to the Kentucky Wildcats. And now they all have a you know, homecoming next week and then have to go back on the road again in two more weekends to face South Carolina. I bring that up because Florida under Billy Napier now is one in seven on the road. You are not going to become an elite program. Once again, if you do not win on the road, the only win on the road was against Texas A&M last year. So Florida's got to figure this out. There's a lot of issues to get into. And that is where we are going to bring in my co-host tonight, Neil Shulman and Dustin Smith, who are going to help break down what are those specific issues on offense, defense, special teams, and in coaching. So, guys, give me your quick, you know, just reaction to this game, how you're feeling, and really where we go from here. Dustin, I'll start with you. Yeah, guys, it's uh, frustrating. And I think we've talked about it at nauseum. There's some 
there's some issues with, with play design. There's also issues with play calling. I know, I know that's obvious, but the thing I want to highlight is, you know, you said it right off the bat. When we run the ball well, we win the game. When we're when our run is stuffed, we lose the game, and that cannot be in college football because better defenses are going to be able to game plan and stop your strength so you have to be able to find other ways to get the ball down the field you got to find other ways to to win the game and the concern is not the talent I think we have the talent throwing the ball to be able to win the game the thing that is so frustrating is the play calling does not demonstrate a it doesn't demonstrate inventiveness in 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 the ability to capitalize on what the defense is doing because if the do- if the defense is loading the box to stop the run there's going to be passing lanes the one my one observation that i'm going to bring up there's plenty from this game but the one that i want to bring up right off the bat is we continue to run hitches right into linebackers okay you're you're what, what you're doing is you're loading the box right the, the defense is loading the box and what does that mean it means you have eight you have seven or eight, right in the middle of the field. So where do I not want to throw the ball? In the middle of the field. You have the you have 53 and a third yards to throw the ball left to right. You got to capitalize on the areas the defense is not. And it doesn't seem we're doing that. The other thing that I wish we would have capitalized on is we do run a lot of hitches, but I would love to see a hitch and go. And we, I mean... Maybe we did it, but we de- we definitely didn't capitalize on it with 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 a big game. I did love that one throw. Unfortunately, uh, Caleb Douglas got hurt on it, but I did love that one throw. Um, that was exciting. I wish we would have saw that more because I mean, if we would have ran that that type of play more, I think we would have capitalized on it at least based on what we're seeing from from uh, Kentucky's defense. I say all that to say that it's an observation. It's an observation. But it's an observation that is continuous. We've seen it in previous weeks, even in that second half against Tennessee. So, guys, what do you think? I mean, eventually you're just going to see every cornerback that Florida ever faces just sitting there, not not even squatting, but literally just not even being willing to go beyond 10, 12, 13 yards or so beyond line of scrimmage and just locking in and selling out for the hitch. And until Florida has the ability to have a team of receivers – execute a, a hitch and go or a sluggo or something of the sort where they go more than 15 yards down the field. And then Mertz is able to hit them. The second part of which we saw him overthrow a couple of guys who had a couple of steps on their receivers throughout this game. He did hit a couple um, of balls beyond 15 or so yards, but those guys were wide open. I mean, early in the game, I think first or second driver. So Mertz had a receiver by good two and a half steps or so. And he just missed them. And that happened again later in the game. So, I mean, we want to talk about his efficiency like, of being, what, 25 or th- for 30 or so. I mean, those don't factor in the misses that he had when he had guys beat or when his receivers had their guys beat on Kentucky's defense and he just didn't get them the football. Also doesn't factor in the other sense in which he didn't get them the football, by which I mean he didn't even throw the ball in their direction. Either he doesn't trust his deep ball or he didn't see them. In either case, that's very concerning, and it does a lot to negate that efficiency piece. So, 
I mean, for me, the, the big takeaway is, I mean, because I'm the guy that that runs the the social handle, so I have to deal with all kinds of hyperbole after losses like this. And you know, obviously, no, it's not the most embarrassing loss in Florida history. Like that, that kind of stuff is always going to come out after these kinds of games. That, that's ridiculous. Uh, but I mean, off the top of my head, I, I can give you ten that are worse, like Georgia Southern in thirteen, Mississippi State in two thousand four, the one that got Zook fired, the Missouri in two thousand fourteen. There was a seventy-five nothing loss to Georgia in nineteen forty-two. Obviously, the national championship game against Nebraska, uh, Florida outright quit and and just shut down the operation and losses to very mediocre Missouri and South Carolina teams in two thousand seventeen. And 2021, respectively, you know, those are more embarrassing because they quit. Uh, the fourth and dumb against Georgia in 1976 was pretty bad. Uh, Vanderbilt last year was was really bad. Also lost 24 to nine to a three and eight Vandy team in 1988. That was more embarrassing. Um, there, there was a choke job against Miami where Florida blew a 33-10 lead late in the third quarter. They lost that game. That was definitely worse. Uh, 27 to two against FSU. That was worse. So no, not, a, not even a top 10 loss in Florida history in terms of embarrassing. It, it might be in the next 10. It it could be in that 11 to 20 range in terms of the most embarrassing losses in Florida history. And to me, the reason for that is because Florida knew exactly what Kentucky was going to do on both sides of the ball. They knew what their strategy was going to be and they still got blown out anyway by a less talented team that is embarrassing so that's the takeaway florida got embarrassed in every facet of the game anywhere you want to look there was just bad game tape being rolled out there against inferior competition yeah no i mean this is probably the worst loss i no doubt of the four that have happened uh, for Florida in the last six games against Kentucky. I think that's safe to say at the very least. And it's certainly one of the more dominating losses against Billy Napier. I mean, there wasn't a phase of the game you could hang your hat on and say that Florida beat Kentucky. They got dominated at every phase of the game, offense, defense, special teams. The line of scrimmage is, is where we lost the game. And this is what Mark Stoops does every single time we play them. He wants to establish the run then take the top off the defense when he has his opportunities to do so. He didn't need to do that at all. This was actually the fewest amount he passed against us in the four wins he's had over us in the last six tries. Devin Leary's stat line was nothing to ride home about whatsoever. He was a paltry nine for 19, 69 yards. He did have the touchdown pass to Ray Davis, which was the, the swing pass, you know, more of a check down, if anything. But he almost threw a pick six to Jason Marshall in this game. And he certainly took a couple of throws that were rather questionable, but they didn't need him to win this game. They dominated. Florida was dominated at the point of attack. It was honestly shades, Neil, of the 2021 LSU game where Davis Price just ran all up and down. That was the even worse performance against the run. But yeah, I was going to say, at least this one wasn't a school record. It was not a school record, but it was certainly trending that way. And I think, if anything, maybe they called the dogs off a little bit on us and had some mercy. But, you know, Mark Stoops does this every single time he plays Florida. This is the game plan he's had ever since he's arrived in Lexington in 2013. And it's now kicking our butt every single time we play them. So Florida's got to have an answer for it. And really, I think it just it shows really the offensive struggles stem from a bad offensive line. It's time to have a serious conversation about the the, the skill level that we have there. 
when we lost Osiris Torrance this offseason to the NFL draft, that was a major loss. I think we tried to underplay it when we brought in Micah Masuka from Baylor. He's played all right, but he's certainly not playing at the All-American level that Osiris Torrance was, not even really an all-conference level in the interior of the offensive line. That is a problem. And until Florida can start pushing people, they couldn't even push Charlotte, really, in, in, in the game a week ago. And we were trying to play that off as an anomaly. It wasn't an anomaly. This is who Florida is. Florida has only played one solid half of football this entire season. The, the only one we could say is Tennessee at this point, when we were up 26-7 at halftime. The Utah game, we played four awful quarters. The Charlotte game, we played four quarters of pretty average football. And now we've got a game where we played four quarters of awful football. So I think that it, it really does start with the offensive line, and that stems to the rest of the issues we're seeing offensively at the skill positions. Yeah, we can talk about the offensive line. Are we just going to completely forget about the fact that uh, Ethan White and Michael Tarquin were all conference selections last year and mysteriously didn't want to come back this year. Does that not raise something of an alarm bell? Because yeah, there's a little more behind the scenes that, that went down that isn't really worth going into now. And honestly, I don't even have all the facts there, but so, something was strange about that that I think needs to be talked about. And whether from Napier or someone else in the program, we need answers to because that looks very, very questionable right about now. Yeah, I know it's concerning, and, and just two things I want to I want to bring up and, and to you guys' point. So, number one, from a talent standpoint, Florida should be beating teams that are less talented than Florida. If you look at the two four seven sports talent composite, Florida is more talented than Tennessee, only slightly, but they are more talented than Tennessee. They won, but Kentucky is the twelfth most talented team in the SEC. Now, I understand Stoops is building something. They're a great program, and they clearly were the better team in this particular set of 60 minutes. But this cannot be happening. And you guys are absolutely right. Offensive line should be within the system that Billy Napier has. It should be one of the best units in the country. Okay, You have two offensive line coaches. You have, a, you have an offensive line-friendly system that Napier is running. The offensive line should be the best. No no doubt about it. No question about it. Look, guys, I know that we're going to talk about needing a new offensive coordinator. That, that'd be great. But all that aside, if Billy Napier, in his exact idea, his exact system, his exact philosophy, if there's absolutely no changes except for one, the offensive line gets better, then I think we're a solid team. The problem is, where not only is his system inefficient and not working, but the thing that he hangs his hat on sucks right now. It sucks. And that's the problem I'm seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I could maybe make a case that Austin Barber is playing okay. Um, did not have a great game, I don't think, against Kentucky. But I think for the most part of this year, he's been fine. Kingsley has not been healthy. But when he has been, I'd say he's also been Okay, I would again would not say great, but I'd say he's been okay. Rest of the line, big, big problem for this Florida team. 
So it's not like it's just one guy that you can say, ah, bench him. He's not doing his job. Or yeah, we need to, we need to recruit an offensive guard to fill that void next year. He'll start as a true freshman, or we'll get a portal guy for that one position on the line. No, it's the whole offensive line. And like Dustin said, when you have two offensive line coaches, by the way, one of those spots on your staff of which comes at the expense of having a special teams coach on the field, that unit had better be elite. And it's not. Yeah, I think the to me, I, and we'll talk about really the coaching staff and the changes, but I think at this point, the experiment of having two offensive line coaches, it's over. It, it, it's a failed experiment here under the regime of Billy Napier. When you are not recruiting at an elite level with two offensive line coaches, strike one. When you're not developing them and we're not progressing on the field and we're getting bodied and pushed around by an inferior team talent wise in the two, four, seven, a positive, like Dustin mentioned strike two and strike three is the fact that because we have two offensive line coaches, it doesn't allow us to have an on-field special teams coach. It also doesn't free up the fact that maybe we could bring in an offensive coordinator or a passing game coordinator that can improve that facet of our offense, which is severely struggling right now. Strike three, this is done. This has to end. This offseason, we have to make the change to go away from two offensive line coaches. No other team, really, that I can think of in the country does this. It, it just has not worked for Florida. And I think going forward, looking into signing day in two months, the most important position at the high school level and the transfer portal is offensive line. This We have to get five guys next year against some of the most Nasty defenses in the SEC and non-conference. We play Miami next year. We play UCF. We play Florida State. We play Texas A&M. We play Ole Miss. We play LSU. We play Kentucky again. We play Tennessee. We play Georgia. I mean, we play elite trench monsters, defensive and offensive line every year. But as it pertains to the offensive line, if we're not recruiting at an elite level, we're going to see results like this over and over and over again. And we're going to see them against even inferior opponents when we shouldn't see them anymore. So for me, the offense starts with the offensive line and how we dominate the line of scrimmage and the point of attack there. It's a failed experiment now. No disrespect to Rob Sale or Darnell Stapleton. I think they're both great guys. I, I wouldn't mind keeping one of them, but we have to make a change. We cannot have two offensive line coaches. I'll even say that I don't even fault Napier for the attempt or for the idea. I think it was a good idea. I think it was worth trying, especially early on in his tenure, because on paper, it does make sense. The offensive line is the most important position in the game of football outside of maybe quarterback or I guess maybe defensive line, maybe. But it's it was worth an attempt, I think, as you were trying to instill something new and, and really implant your your blueprint on a program. It just didn't work. And now we're we're reaching the point where Chris said where we we got to do something different. He's got to make a change, and that's going to be part of a theme. We're going to talk about quite a few changes that have to be made, I think, throughout the rest of this podcast. So, I mean, Chris, I, I don't think there's any point keeping the masses waiting. Let's uh, let's let's start let's let's, let's start that process because we got a lot. <laughs> yeah. So we, we we've talked about one part of the offensive struggles, and now we're going to get into something what Dustin talked about as we let off the show is. We are not utilizing all ends of the field, all 53 and a third yard of the field. We do not spread out. A lot of formations are sitting within the hash marks. Not a lot of teams in modern college football do that. Florida was revolutionized, revolutionized the game with the spread offense in the mid-2000s with Urban Meyer using every square inch of the field. So that leads me to the next topic of discussion. 
it's time for an offensive coordinator and a new play caller in Gainesville. I'm going to say this. I love Billy Napier. I think he's the right guy for the job. I am not calling for Billy Napier to be fired. I don't think a lot of the other nation is either, but then I think those conversations are very premature. However, Billy Napier has to make a decision and look at himself in the mirror. He can be a great CEO. He can build this program the right way, instilling a great culture, a strong foundation, player trust, family trust, recruiting. You know, he's one of the best recruiters in the country. But if he is failing at the very thing right now that helps us win games on Saturday, which is calling the plays, he is doing a disservice to himself, to the program, and to the players that he coaches. He has to make the decision that it is time to put his ego aside and relinquish play calling duties. I wish he would consider doing it this year, but maybe the bye week before Georgia and try somebody on his staff. Maybe give them an opportunity like a Russ Callaway or a Rob Sale. But we have to make a change. He has to make a change at the very least this offseason. Because I said this in 2021, after or in 2020, after the season, when everybody was calling for the firing of Todd Grantham, it needed to happen. And I said, the moment that Dan Mullen decided to retain Todd Grantham as defensive coordinator, it no longer the target no longer was on Todd Grantham's back. It was on Dan Mullen's back. If Billy Napier does not replace himself as the play caller and bring in an offensive coordinator, the target is now squarely on his back in the third season, and which will be shaping up as one of the toughest on record for the schedule. So I say all that now to get into the discussion of it's time. I guess it's just time to have an offensive court, another an offensive coordinator, another person calling the plays in Gainesville. But that's also to say we love Billy Napier for the other great things that he's doing in the program. But there's a middle ground between being patient because we can't be patient anymore. Something clearly has to change if he if the trajectory of his tenure is to succeed, and him being fired because that's just ludicrous. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, that the middle ground approach would do a lot of good in a lot of situations, both in and out of sports. But I think here it's warranted because, I mean, we'll talk about this. Or I'll, I'll I have an article coming about exactly how much Florida would owe Billy Napier if he's fired. Spoiler alert, it is a lot of money. So I'll talk about the exact figures more uh, later this week. Anyway, it's not going to happen this year. So He's going to be coming back in 2024. The key now for me is he's going to have to start doing things that prove he is capable of holding this job in Gainesville for more than just the 2024 season. And so hiring an offensive coordinator is something that not only I, you know, Chris, you know, you and I and Dustin have, have been calling for. I think 90% of the Gator fans who watch this this show and and listen to our podcast and even just in general, 90% of Gator fans, period have been saying you need an offensive coordinator, Billy. And look, I'm, obviously, you can't take every single sentiment that the fan base has and and take it as gospel. There's a saying, if you listen to the fans, you'll be one of them. So obviously the coaches in Gainesville are supposed to know more about things than the Gator fan base. But I will say this, if the overwhelming majority of the fan base is clamoring for something and the coach doesn't do it, and then the thing that the Gator fans have been clamoring for because that doesn't happen, the Gators continue to be hurt by it on the field or on the court, depending on the sport. It's a really, really difficult thing for the coach to come back from. 
it is very, very difficult to objectively argue that Billy Napier does not have to do something different this offseason for the 2024 season. But for me, the key is not just get an offensive coordinator. No, it's get the right offensive coordinator. Get someone who could completely revitalize your offense. Because if he just goes and he hires a, a quote-unquote yes man, he goes and, and he just has someone do whatever he says and does his bidding and will listen to him and go, yes, sir, it's not going to work. It's not going to work any differently than things are working right now. There'll be the same mandatory pre-snap motion on every single play, the same lack of urgency when there's a two score or three score deficit late in the game. And you're routinely bleeding off 25 plus seconds of every single play. It's just not going to work any differently. And that's not going to check the box of hiring an offensive coordinator because it's not going to be doing anything different for the Florida Gator program. So that distinction I think has to be made. It has to be an offensive coordinator who can provide his own insight, his own input and take the offense in a more exciting direction. Because guess what? You're going to have a five-star quarterback to work with next season. You're going to have a lot of talented, will then be sophomore receivers to work with. Hopefully, Aiden Mizell continues to fill out that frame. He's someone I think can be extremely productive for the Florida Gators with that speed, yeah. the way it takes the top off a of defense. So him, my um, Mizell, Gene, Eugene Wilson, and more receivers coming into the fray with this upcoming class, you had a lot of talent on your hands. So the offensive coordinator hire has to be someone who can utilize all of those pieces, plus Trevor Etienne, plus we're going to assume Montreal Johnson will be back for one more year. You're going to have a lot to work with, so you better do something to utilize it. Before we go any further, got to shout out our merch store. We've got new merch that is comfortable, lightweight for those hot summer days, makes it clear to everyone you come across which team you pull for. From 100% polyester workout tees to soft-style cotton tees, sport tech polos, quarter zips, hoodies, beanies, baseball caps, trucker hats, koozies, tumblers, and more in all kinds of weather has just the gear you're looking for this football season. Our in all kinds of weather gear is sold in four colors, orange, blue, black, and white, and it all features that sleek new alligator logo that pays homage to all your favorite moments in Gator history. So don't wait. Get yours today. Go to inallkindsofweather.com slash merch to get yours now. That's inallkindsofweather.com slash merch. So, guys, Gator Jen put this on, on Twitter, and I absolutely love what she said. And this is in, in terms of the offensive coordinator situation. I've settled on this. Gator fans love offense more than anything. Obnoxious, run up the score, flashy foot on the gas, dance in the end zone, don't care about your feelings, screw sportsmanship, steal your soul offense. UF has the young talent. Just need to get them there. Guys, I hate to say it, but that that's the identity of, of Gator football. When we were doing well in the 90s, that's the identity of Gator football. When we were doing well – in the in the mid 2000s that's how florida football was right nobody look when dan mullen was coach nobody was disappointed in his offense it was the defensive side of the ball and the recruiting okay we have the defensive side of the ball we have the recruiting but it's funny that now that we have the other things in place that we were hoping for the offense is falling apart the special teams is falling apart guys we need to get it all together okay we need everybody to be on the same page. And it's important when your defense is not doing well that your offense can score from anywhere on the field, right? Look, Kentucky scored 33. 
The Gators better score 34. But it's it's beyond that. You got to get excited to play that side of the ball. You got you to be a tacticians. And that's something that I really want to see a new offensive coordinator. Look, look Neil, you're absolutely right. We, we don't need a yes man. Billy Napier needs to find. He's great with personnel. Okay, you talk about building an army. I think he's done a pretty good job. Obviously, with the the whole two offensive line coaches and the special teams coordinator position aside, I think he's done a great job. Look at look at who he's got with Corey Raymond. Look at who he's got with Rob Sale. These guys are respected. Um, but think about it. We need to go out and hire a splash at offensive coordinator, a guy who's going to revolutionize this team. Think about Joe Brady with LSU. LSU was nothing offensively until they made that change. That's what that's what Billy Napier needs to do. Yeah, no, I I agree. He's got to make a big change, and you know, obviously, the personnel is going to continue to change and, and improve if we bring in this big time recruiting class we've got now. That's sitting anywhere between three or four, depending on one site you look at. But and, and of course, as Neil mentioned, you have a five star quarterback coming in next year. But the fact remains. No matter what, if you bring in, you can bring in all the talent in the world. If you can't coach them up correctly and you're putting them in positions to lose, you're going to waste talent. And then eventually recruits on the recruiting trail are going to realize that and then they're not going to want to play for you. So he does. Have, that's why this change really does have to take place this offseason, because I was going to say it's not not eventually. It's going to be sooner rather than later. Yeah, no. It, and it could it could even have in this class. We don't know yet. I mean, right now, Lagway seems very solid to Florida. As many Gator fans saw, he had seven touchdown passes and a half once again or seven touchdowns once again in a half of football for out in Texas this past Friday night. He's a baller. We all know that he's a baller. He's the best high school prospect probably in the country. But that's not going to matter if we're throwing slants into nine-man fronts on third and short. And, you know, everybody's giving a hard time for Boardingham. I mean, Boardingham should have caught that ball that was ultimately popped in the air and intercepted. But there were also three guys around him that were immediately going to slam him and when he when his hand touched the ball. And then that's when the ball got hopped up in the air. It was picked off. There was little margin for error in that moment. That's play calling. That is play calling that Dustin's talking about. We have to find other creative ways to get the ball in space. We have guys with speed. Aiden Mizell, Andy Jean. I think, you know, one of the bright spots of this game was the fact Andy Jean probably is ready now to take on more of this offense. He had four catches for yeah. three yards. He had a, a, a 25-yard rush on the reverse last week against Charlotte. I think we're going to see a lot more Andy Jean. Unfortunately, Eugene Wilson was not healthy enough to go for this game. Apparently, it was a pain tolerance issue. That's why they held him out. But imagine when you get guys like Andy Jean and Eugene Wilson and Aiden Mizell, and you still have Ricky Pearsall on this team. You have Trevor Etienne. Then you guy you get those guys in space to make guys miss break tackles, that's when the offense can start moving. And honestly, that's something we can do right now this season before going out and hiring an offensive coordinator or a play caller for the Gators. And it could build, be a building block for the next season when you have the majority of the players that I just mentioned back on this roster on the offensive side of the ball. You know, like I said, it, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You need a good play call. You need somebody to scheme something up and have a design game plan that's going to put us in the best position to win. And we're simply not doing that right now. But 
Well, let, let's uh, let's quickly just kind of give our last minute thoughts on the offense, and then we'll we'll jump over to the defensive side of the ball. But really, I think the glaring issues right now, obviously, are the the offensive line's weak. It's not strong enough to sustain itself in SEC play at this present time, and that's hindering our greatest strength, which is our run game in Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne. And then also the play calling is just not putting these guys in a position to win games. That's the thing too. It's not with the offense and the need for an offensive coordinator. It's not just because the play calls are terrible. It's not just because the play designs are terrible. It's not just because the offensive line is terrible. And it's not just because your quarterback is limited. It's because of all those things. And because Napier wears all those hats at the same time, I firmly believe that this sum of those responsibilities, the weight of all those responsibilities is adversely affecting his other decisions that he makes because, all right, let's, let's go back to even the Utah game. First game he ever coached the one that we won in the swamp last year. Everyone was celebrating the win, great win, all that. Me being the pessimist of the show here, my reaction was what in the hell are you doing before that fourth and three where you bleed the clock all the way down and then call a timeout. Now you don't have that one. If you need it, if you need to stop the clock, if Utah's going to bleed all the clock down before they score the winning touchdown, or if they score too quickly and you have the ball back with a chance, maybe with 20 seconds or so, you don't have that timeout for that. What are you doing? Like these kinds of questionable decisions that he makes are just part of the many hats he wears. And I'm firmly in belief that he can't handle all of these things because they bring him down in every other area as an on-field CEO. Yeah, I, I agree. Neil. I think that if, if, if he will, it'd be interesting to see what happens if he decides to go through with bringing in another guy to call plays to see how he then manages the rest of the game, because we have had clock issues. We have had timeout game management issues outside of the play clock, which is a completely separate issue. And I think it also will allow him to focus even more so on the nitty gritty details like he likes to do in other facets of the program, whether that is recruiting, whether that's behind the scenes with the facilities, building the program, relationships with the administration and the alumni, the boosters, whatever it may be. Those are areas where, if the, that is the head coach's job, you are the ambassador of the football program you represented. You are you hold the keys to the kingdom, and your job too is to, I think, handing off the play, delegating your play calling duties, is, is a good thing. And it's like you know, I don't know if one of you said it or somebody else said it recently, but it's like if you can find somebody that can do something. 80% as good as you can do it, you should delegate it to them. And you could teach them the other 20%. And I, I to be honest, I don't know how much, but maybe I think Napier probably could find somebody that can do it 100% better than him the way he's been calling plays lately. But the point remains, as a leader, you have to make, and a CEO at that, you have to make the decision that it's time to hand the reins off to other people to do other things. I said that about you, Chris, because you're an excellent host of the show. All right. That's, that's what it was. I can't remember. I can't. I was like, I heard it somewhere, and there it is. So Neil did it. There you go. Neil Shulman. If you uh if you can do something 80%, find someone that can do it 80% as good as you, hand it off and teach me what's I probably heard it from someone else, to be completely yeah. honest, but I will I will take credit in that I'm the one that said we, it. we recently had a conversation about uh what that I do by now I is coming back to me. Yeah. <laughs> but right. Man, man, Neil's been doing a lot of delegation lately, and 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 hopefully it's it's making some improvements. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like right. your model. That's a good one. We'll get to that in a little bit, but yeah. I mean, like that, and that's the thing to be a good CEO. I'm not saying I'm perfect. Obviously I'm not. I mean, I've made plenty of missteps with all kinds of weather, but the bottom line is to be a good CEO. You sometimes have to realize when you're not the best at something to then be willing to fire yourself from that particular duty and then to go get someone better. It's not to just say, well, you know, everyone thinks that I'm just doing too much. So I'll just get someone else to just do the job and check the box without actually really solving the issue. And it just doesn't fix anything. And honestly, in a way that's worse because to me, that would tell me that there's an ego issue on top of everything else. And that is a big reason why Dan Mullen got fired. So it's, it's a two-step process. Be willing to fire yourself as the offensive coordinator and then not just do it for political reasons, not just do it to check the box, but to do it for the reason of making your program better. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've talked about the offense and the play calling with Billy Napier. Now let's switch to the side of the ball that has been a, a, a massive positive thus far and an improvement for the Gators. But unfortunately, they took a major step back in this game. The defense was run all over, like we mentioned at the top, for 329 yards on the ground. I'm not even, I don't have the number in front of me, but it has to be an astronomical number. There were numerous missed tackles on almost every play that we were gashed by Ray Davis or any of the other Kentucky running backs in this game. We, once again, did not get to the quarterback. We, once again, did not force a turnover. The defense did not impact this game in a positive way that it had had in the previous four games. Even against Utah, there were a lot of positives to draw from that game. We saw the potential. Defense did not lose this that game. It was the miscues on special teams and the inability that we've talked about once again tonight with the offense and not being able to drive the ball down the field. The defense, though, just lost the game. And that's the problem with Florida and this team is that if the, the offense is having – more of the miscues that they've having all season and the defense has an off night, you're going to get ugly results like this. And unfortunately, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more ugly results like this the rest of the season against some of the ranked opponents we have coming up in October and in November, just because quite frankly, if the defense can't hold up against every elite offense in the, out there and Kentucky's not even an elite offense, we're going to face better offenses before the season's over. That's the scary part. So, Florida has to figure this some of the, the issues that went wrong on the defensive side of the ball, but they got bullied. They got bullied on the defensive line. A lot of missed tackles, a lot of ankle tackles, a lot of shoulder tackles, a lot of guys getting just dragged up and down the field. It was a, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. So this is a this is one net data point in the negative for against Austin Armstrong in this defense, but. What do you all think? Is this something, is this an anomaly or is this a concern going forward? I think it's a concern because you can't just scheme a defense and hope the scheme does the job. There actually has to be execution and there actually has to be want to. And unfortunately, you know, this defense got their belly rubbed. They were, they were finally touted and, and certainly well-deserved praise in terms of what they were able to do. Thus far this season, the defense wasn't the problem. Yes, Utah scored some points on Florida. There was that big play at the beginning of the game that sort of essentially sealed the deal for Utah. But defense was not the reason why Florida lost to Utah. Now, the offense made 
the defense potentially the reason why Florida lost to Kentucky. But the defense did not win that game. The defense did not put on the the, the production that was necessary to win that game, even with a mediocre offense. So the bottom line is this. When you see players missing tackles, trying to arm tackle, what, look, I'm a numbers guy. What Ray, Ray Davis is an excellent player. There's some hogs up front for that Kentucky offensive line. But Kentucky, they looked like a cross between the University of Georgia and the Nebraska team that that uh that defeat Florida in, in 1995. Right? It was disgusting. I mean, I mean, look, you had Ray Davis, 10.8 yards per carry, 26 carries, 208 yards, 280 yards. That's massive, and that's inexcusable. I mean, I, look, Neil, wh- when was the last time we, a running back ran for that much? Two yard, two years ago, <laughs> Ty Davis Price <laughs> with Todd Graham. Oh, yeah. LSU, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before that, though, it had been a long time. Yes. He, he's in some company. No excuse for that. Look, I'll give him one big run. One big run, figure it out. Get it fixed. It doesn't happen again. No excuse for that. And the the excuse, I, I think that Florida play. I mean, it's not an excuse, but I think the explanation is that we just didn't execute, like you said. There is no excuse for that. There's just no reason for Kentucky to be doing that. Kentucky. We'll, we'll talk about that, I guess, at some other point, but. Look, to me, the issue in this game, like you said, Dustin, it wasn't a scheme issue. I'm going to use the same uh, analysis you did, but I'm going to come up with a different um, answer, I guess, to the to the Chris question of is this a concern or is this an anomaly? I think it's an anomaly because I don't think it was a scheme issue. I think that for the most part, Austin Armstrong did his job from a from a defensive play calling standpoint. I mean, maybe you could say Florida was playing too loose on on a couple of you know, short yard situations. Maybe here and there you can nitpick some of the play calls, but for the most part, the the team was lined up the way that you want them to be lined up. They just couldn't tackle. They couldn't do anything right. And this is all made worse by the fact that Chris, you and I said repeatedly. Coming into this game on on the pre on the pre show, we said we'd seen a good amount of evidence that Devin Leary is just not a good quarterback. He's average at best. At at best, he's an and average. That showed quarterback. up again. He that and we were that we were vindicated on that. We said coming into the game that he'd struggled in terms, especially in terms of taking care of the football. By the way, the easiest pick six you could ever ask for to Jason Marshall was dropped, but we we saw that on display too. So. Anyway, Kentucky's best chance to win this game was to run the ball effectively. We knew that. We knew that was going to be their game plan. And what happens? Now, you know, Ray Davis goes for 280 yards and four touchdowns, which, by the way, almost exactly matches his output in Kentucky's first four games of the year against Akron, Eastern Kentucky, Ball State, and then Vanderbilt. 314 yards and four touchdowns in those four games. In four games against bad teams, 
280 and four touchdowns against Florida, who was more talented than all four of those teams and had all that game tape to know that that was exactly what was coming from Kentucky's offense. So again, Florida knew that was coming and they just got beaten down anyway. They were first, the first problem, they were completely and utterly destroyed at the line of scrimmage. They were always on their heels. They were always off balance. Gaps were open wide for Ray Davis to run through. And once he did, once he bypassed line of scrimmage, then it became a game of let's see how far down the field I can drag Florida's defenders because he did that quite a bit too. There was there was one play I think he dragged three Florida defenders across the goal line when he started to lower his shoulder about the three and a half yard line or so. He took them for a ride of several yards. That's not scheming. That's not an issue of the defensive coordinator not calling the right plays. That's just Florida's players not doing their jobs. And look, credit to Kentucky. Eli Cox, especially guard, had a big game for them. A lot of good things on tape from him. He owned us. And here's a here's a bullet point uh, for all those you know stars don't matter. All about development people. Here's a bullet point for you. Florida has dominated Kentucky on the recruiting trail pretty much since the dawn of time, which includes the Mullen years and the last couple of years. Two four seven sports talent composite has Florida as the fifteenth most talented team in the country. Kentucky is 31, which, look, not a precise science. There is margin for error here. If the number three team beats number one in the talent composite or or seven beats four or 19 beats 13, you can't really say it's a, an issue of a talent disparity. But once you start flirting with double-digit disparities there, you're talking about discrepancies of 10, 11, 12, or more. It's not a mistake. You can't make the argument that the scouts for 247 and ESPN and Rivals and On3 all missed on all their evals of every single player for Florida and Kentucky by that much, which includes Kentucky's offensive line and Florida's front seven. And even our linebackers, by no means am I placing this loss on Scooby Williams. He didn't have a great game. Shamar James, same thing. Huge fan of him. Those two have been two of the best players on our team this year. They didn't have a great game. And that's how you know that this was just not meant to be. Even our best players, our most reliable players all year, just didn't get the job done. Yeah, two top 100 composite players did not get the job done. Both Scooby Williams and uh, Shamar James ranked in the top 100 when they came to the University of Florida. And that played great thus far. And we had touted them as saying they have been playing at an all-SEC level. And I still think they can have that kind of season. But Florida's defense, in order for the Gators to win six, seven games, which we'll get into kind of the outlook of the season here in just a little bit, the defense is going to have to win Florida games. They're going to have to carry them. And efforts like these did cannot do that. I mean, if you look at the box score, Kentucky scored 16 in the first quarter and then scored a touchdown in, in the middle two and then a field goal in the fourth. So the defense primarily slowed Kentucky down in the last three quarters of the game. It was just an onslaught of just, the, you know, Kentucky got the ball, Went down, should have scored a touchdown on the first drive. That if it weren't for the receiver dropping the ball, then they do go down. Ray Davis scores on a big long run. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they score. It went down, and then the the awful penalty happens right, and the special teams, which gives them back the ball, and then one play later, boom, gone. I mean, at that point, you just knew it wasn't our day. It just was not our day, and and there was no coming back for that whatsoever. So Florida, I think at the end of the day. The defense has to hold serve. Otherwise, we're going to see some really tough losses like we saw 
this past Saturday. And I'll say, I think they will. That's why I said, I think it was an anomaly, not a concern because I do think the talent is there. And Dustin, to your point of the defense getting their belly rubbed after playing a few good games to start the year. Well, now you just got knocked flat on your back. You got beaten down into reality. You have fallen back down to earth. You don't have to worry about the team playing complacent anymore. I am. If I know anything about Austin Armstrong from anything I've heard about him, he's not going to be too nice to those guys in the film room this week. They're not going to be, they're not going to have their bellies rubbed anymore. They're going to be talked to in a much different way than they've been talked to the first four weeks of the season. So I do expect a bounce back from them, not only against Vandy, but for the rest of the year. I think that Florida's coaches will use that to, to motivate the defensive, defensive players the rest of the year. The competition is going to get a lot better. You're going to see a lot tougher challenges in terms of LSU and Georgia and even FSU. But I think that that the defense just not being ready to play I, I don't think that that will be a continuous issue the rest of the year. The concern obviously would be, like I just said, you play LSU in Georgia and FSU. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we'll have to see, but so we'll get into that now. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about special teams really quick and then we'll get into the rest of the season. So special teams, once again, found a way to hurt us in another way. And I'll be honest, I'll preface this by saying, I do not believe that Dejon Johnson, you know, I, I don't think it was an egregious mistake on his part that, once again, probably his coaching could have remedied that situation. He is a young cornerback, young special teams player trying to make an impact. Florida actually started showing that they were getting pressure on the punter. They came close to blocking several punts in this game. They did block one partially in the Charlotte game. They blocked a PAT in this game. So we're starting to see the, the, the possibility of the speed on this on the squad getting to the kickers, getting to the punters, maybe impacting the game in that way, which would be very welcomed. However, the effort of Dejon Johnson in this situation cost Florida dearly. Dearly. I mean, at that point, it's only 10-0. Let's say Florida does get the ball back. I think they actually got the ball back near midfield because at that point, Jeremy Crosshaw had actually flipped the field for Florida. We stopped Kentucky way back in their own territory. We were going to get the ball back at midfield. If it, if Graham Mertz and the Gators engineer a touchdown drive, it's 10-7 in the first quarter. It's a whole new ball game, similar to what happened at Utah when we had the false start penalty, then the missed kick. And then, of course, there was the infamous two players with the same jersey on that when it was only 7-3, Utah then went down and scored, made it 14-3. Florida never was able to recover from that. Same situation. Florida was not able to recover when Ray Davis just took the ball one play later for 90 yards, and Kentucky was able to cruise from that point. So, guys, what do we think? Special teams, are we – we're showing some signs of improvement in one area, but then once again we find a way for them to affect us in another. Hey, you want to talk about a game-changing play? That was certainly a game-changing play, to your point, Chris. Now, the big thing about that play that frustrates me the most, I know, obviously, it was a rule. It is a rule, and the rule was broken, and I understand why they have the penalty. They want to, they want to protect the players, but that's got to be a situation where you got to you got to use some common sense, right? That what what Johnson did, it did not impact negatively the outcome of that play, right? It did not put Kentucky at a disadvantage. That's the whole point of penalties. You want to protect the players, but ultimately you're making up for a disadvantage that that rule breakage, for lack of a better phrase, caused. And that's a situation where, where the ref just has to get to the coach, get to the player, be like, hey, 
This is illegal. You do it again, I'm going to penalize you. That, that, that happens all the time. When I was playing high school ball, there would be time, there would be obscure rules where we'd make a mistake and I would see the ref go to the coach and the ref would, would make that comment. This is, this is a, a, a breaking of the rules. Don't let this happen again. Now, if it's, egre- if it's egregious, then, then call the penalty. You know, real quick analogy. That's like you're, you're, you're going three miles per hour over the speed limit. You're going 48 into 45. And that cop decides to still pull you over when you're going 48 into 45. Now, if I'm going 55 into 45, 60 into 45, pull me over, cop, if you want. But 48 into 45, $200 speedy ticket, <laughs> it, it's nonsense. And that play right there changed everything. Because what happened? Kentucky got the ball back. And then they broke off the, I believe, the 75-yard touchdown run. Complete game changer. I mean, look, to, to that point, if you want to go that route, it's a slippery slope because then you can go into the whole thing of, well, if you hit a quarterback five seconds late, it didn't affect the play. It didn't affect the outcome of that play, but it's still a safety issue, right? Like if you're still going to go in low and hit the quarterback, you know, a full four seconds after the release, you can't possibly say it affected his throw, but it is a, a risk of you potentially tearing his ACL or Worse, if you go high, you might get a targeting. So I, I do I do understand it from that perspective. That said, like like you said, I think the rule could be refined a bit to maybe again, it's tough because it would it would then be a judgment call of was there was there a real danger by by doing the leaping? Is is he just trying to block the punt or whatever you have it? But like you said, it, it is the rule, and and I, I do think it was fairly called. Like Chris said, though, I also do think that proper coaching, proper instruction could have remedied that situation, which have we heard that before? I don't know, with, with guys maybe catching punts inside the, the five-yard line before, um, maybe, you know, guys wearing this, two guys wearing the same jersey at the same time. We Have we, have we talked about that at all this year? Couple times. I mean, to your point, though, it hasn't happened again. And I, I mean, you can bet that I think Dijon Johnson is going to be coached up, and he'll never make that same mistake again. At least I hope not. If he does, then he's probably he should never play on special teams again. Florida, at the very least, is showing I think signs of improvement in special teams. The kicking game has gotten significantly better. Trace Mack is automatic, showing that he can be automatic back there. Jeremy Croshaw didn't shake a punt. He actually had four really, I think four or five really good punts uh, in this game, you know, putting some in the inside the 20 yard line. Uh, hold on, I have it right here. Yeah, he had one inside the 20 yard line. He had a 61 yard punt, his longest punt of the year. And of course, in that situation where Kentucky was backed up in their own end zone, that could have changed the game in the first quarter when the momentum was against Florida at that point. So I, I was happy to see that. And like we're, we're we're showing, we blocked PAT, we blocked punt last week. We're showing we're getting to the kickers, the punters more. And the return game has improved a little bit. We had uh, no punt returns in this game because you know all of them were. Or we had one punt return for five yards from Trevor Etienne, but nonetheless, I think we're showing improvement in certain areas, and we're starting to clean up some of the miscues. I don't in this game, special teams didn't really lose us the game. When a guy goes for two ninety for what is it two eighty six or 280 on you, that's a problem. That's what lost Florida the game, was giving up 329 yards of rushing and only having 69 of your own on the ground. That's We lost the game in the trenches. 
we could have overcome a 15-yard penalty early in the first quarter had we then not give relinquished a 75-yard run, like Dustin said, to Ray Davis at one play later. We, if we go, if we get it, go back, the defense gets on there and there's a three and out. We avoid the whole situation altogether. So, you know, it's just it's just once again, it's one thing after another. And when you have when you limit yourself for margin of error, you then have these situations arise in a game where it then it hurts you. And that's my you. issue, by the way, Chris. It's one thing after another. First, it's the catching of the punts inside your own five, which was an issue last year. Then it was the guys with the same jersey. Then it was, I mean, and it's since been got issues of guys running back kickoffs from two yards deep in their own end zone and, and on and on. And then there's a hole in the block in the back. And it's just every little thing you can possibly think of teaming up in succession to hurt Florida and cost them games. So this time, maybe it was a little trivial of a manner. Was he leaping? Was he just trying to make a football play? Maybe, but it's just another bullet point on top of a large pile of them against a guy who I think is getting a lot of criticism right now. Chris, I think that that's that's definitely fair to say. Um, I mean, I don't know what what the change there would look like. I think the offensive the, the two offensive line coach issue has to be dealt with first before the dominoes on special teams can start to fall. But I think. Regardless, I mean, maybe we're seeing a little improvement, but it's pretty clear throughout one game shy of a full season and a half of Billy Napier that not only is that experiment not working out with two OL coaches, but the not having an on-field special teams coach experiment, that's really not helping us. Yeah, well, in regards to that, there is some news starting to come out this evening here on Sunday night, and that is that there is a potential change coming. It has not officially been announced by the program, but there are rumblings that Chris Couch, who is was the game changing, a game changer's uh, off the field role, um, either he will be relinquished of those duties or he no longer will serve in those duties in that capacity. There is a lot of rumors. The, the two four seven put out a report refuting that. The school also refuted it, but. A lot of sources within the program were saying that it is true that he will no longer be coaching special teams or game changers, as they like to call them. Just, just stop. Just, we we have to start with that. We have to be the ones to stop calling it that and just spreading that that lie. That uh, just so yeah, that's a, as Josh Pate likes to call the big lies of college football. And this is the big yeah, lie. Let's of let's just stop perpetuating this, that. This is the big lie of the Gator football program, and that is that special teams are game changers. Well, no, it's not a lie. It's true. It just changes the game in favor of the other team. But not, yeah. not yeah. in the game-changing way. I, I think I think we just got done saying that. game. It, it certainly is game-changing, but... Not not in the way we want it to be. Bad, bad optics, guys. Bad optics. All right. So, offense, defense. Oh, wait, and then look, before we move on, just one one thing. He did delete his Twitter account. That, that part is true. It's not because... He was he was fired. It's because of of some pretty awful behavior from from fans, and I think it's. I mean, it doesn't really have a place in in college football. We shouldn't even be talking about this because it's such something that's not really like rational or sane or logical to to even think to to tweet these kinds of things at coaches. I mean, if you if you're on Twitter, you, you know you've seen the screenshots. I mean, people people threatening him, people threatening to fight him. One guy saying, "I want nine eleven to happen on his house." Just yeah, 
I mean, and those are some of the nicer ones I got, by the way, there, there were worse ones. I did not put out there. Um, some, someone who, who was close to the situation sent me about 30 screenshots. So Twitter only lets you put four screenshots out there. I feel like four kind of got the point across those were four of the nicer ones that I saw. Some of them were emails. Some of them were DMS. They were, they were pretty bad. So look, none of the three of us, and and I don't think 99% of Gator fans are going to defend the on-field play that we see from special teams. It's been terrible. Okay. It's just been outright terrible. I don't care how bad it is. There's no, there's no justification for, for doing anything like that. You can say that the guy is doing his job. You can say the product sucks by all means, but don't don't make it don't make it personal like that. There's just no reason to do that. It doesn't like yeah, certain, anything. Yeah, just real quick. Certainly, commentary is important to the discussion, but I man, I don't know why we really at this point we really have to be doing a dissertation on cyberbullying. I think it's common sense that you realize that these people they're doing a job. You know, think about your own line of work. Whatever you do, listening to this right now. Some days you have good days, other days you don't. Does that mean that you need clients or or bosses cussing the heck out of you because you messed up? It's part of being a human, okay? Couch, he's a human, right? He's a person. Respect him as a person. Is he doing a poor job? Certainly. Does he need to maybe have a different role in the program? Most likely, but treat him like a person, treat him like a human being. That's so important to recognize. Well, By the way, so, just, just pushing okay. back on your point that you, you called it bullying. I think Jacob Rudner of two, four, seven sports called it harassing. I wouldn't call it either of those. It's outright threatening. They're threatening the guy with physical violence saying you wish nine 11 happened. That, that's a threat of yeah. actual physical violence. Like there's no, there's no combination of on-field results that justifies bringing it to any point, even somewhat close to that. That's just completely unhinged behavior from honestly, people who I think are perfectly suited to tweet that because they are unhinged themselves, but that's beyond the point. You don't bring things to a point where you're wishing physical violence upon a football coach because they don't do the job to the the level that you want them to do. I don't care how much they get paid. Okay. There's just no justification for that. Agreed. No doubt. Agreed. And it, you know, for Gator fans out there that are upset, totally empathize with that. But you know, at the end of the day, like Dustin said, Chris Couch is a person. These coaches are people. They have lives. They have families. They see that. And not only that, too, from a bigger level, recruits see that. Recruits – I I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that are connected within the program, and they all say recruits look at the tweets from the fan base. And you want to turn off a recruit from going to that school, say stuff like that to their coaches. Because they will see that and they will not want to be a part of that. So let that also be a lesson that recruits see what you tweet in the public sphere. And if you want them to ever have a chance to come into your program, do not say those awful things. But it's, also, it's so spectacularly stupid for people. I'm just like, like they, they, there's so much bad and there's literally zero good that comes out of doing that. Like there's, there's just, it's, it's such a spectacularly stupid decision to tweet that in the public eye or, or, or even do it privately because I have screenshots of private stuff that was sent to him too. Those are even worse. So recruits, potential coaches that Napier might 
I don't know, now want to hire if he's looking for an offensive coordinator this year, might be seeing that kind of thing. Current coaches who might be doing a good job now, but think, you know what, if I have a bad game, that's going to happen to me too, might leave. Just just so much negative and zero positive that comes out of deciding to tweet that or post that or email that. Yep, absolutely. Guys, here's a, here's a quick pro tip. Type it, and then before you click enter or send, delete it, clear it, or even better, open up your notes app, write it there, and leave it there for no one else to see. All right. So well said, guys. So with that, let's let's quickly before we pivot to the rest of the season, we want to talk about one thing that's done a fantastic job of predicting the season thus far. And Dustin, that is the model, the in all kinds of weather forecaster that you came up with this year. Last week, we talked about that. We, we, we looked at I think it was seven or eight games and it went an astounding six and two in those games last week. This week, we decided to widen our scope a little bit and look. Uh, I'm personally in a pick'em league myself that predicts 30 games or 28 games, whatever it is, uh, weekly. Dustin's model predicted 22 out of 27 of those games correct in that league. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, would it, it would have been too shy of the winner. The winner only uh, actually only missed three games in that one. But of course, that's a human versus a model. But the model would have done fantastic in that league. And it would have definitely, if any of those people out there looking to predict games, just straight up on the money line to pick them, 22 out of 27. So a fantastic success rate by Dustin's model. And we're going to be previewing it later this week on an, another edition of the podcast where he will be breaking down not just kind of where it, how it's done thus far, but now because he has more data can predict out the rest of the season for the Gators. We look forward to that. But with that, speaking of predicting out the rest of the Gators in their season, what do we think? We're sitting at three and two, one and one in SEC play. We've got Vanderbilt coming home for homecoming next weekend. And then we go back on the road to Columbia, South Carolina before the bye week. And then, of course, we've talked about the gauntlet ahead of us in Georgia and in the rest of November. What do we think is a realistic record for the Gators to finish this season, having well witnessed five games? Mm, I I do think Florida bounces back and and beats Vanderbilt in a pretty convincing fashion. There, spoiler alert. Yeah, <laughs> Vanderbilt's really really bad. Um. And, and, and it's at home, where Florida does not seem to be affected by the myriad of issues they seem to be played by on the road. After that, there's not a single game on the schedule that I look at and say that Florida has more than about a 75% chance of winning. There's no sure game. There's no sure win left on the schedule. I mean, Georgia is, is a loss. We know that. I think that's a pretty safe assumption. Going to South Carolina, I mean, First factor in the road issues Florida has. Then remember that South Carolina is two and three, but maybe maybe that's an instance of them being worse than their record says it is because they've already had to play North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. So the back half of their schedule is a lot easier. Maybe they can say, hey, this is where our season turnaround starts. Kind of like if you remember the Butch Jones years of Tennessee where they would routinely start off badly because they would play Alabama, Georgia, and Florida in the first 
you know, six or seven or eight games of the year and have a great November and everyone go, ah, see, look at that. We're turning things around. Big November. We have momentum now in the offseason. South Carolina might look at this game as the start of where they sort of turn things around against an easier schedule and can kind of build momentum for 2024. So they're going to put a lot of stock into this game. A lot of South Carolina friends I have are already saying, yeah, we're, we're, we're targeting that game. Uh, and, then, and they've been saying this all offseason. Like, this can be a game that will determine whether or not our season is a success. If the fans are saying it, I'm not going to say that that the players are going to be saying it to themselves, but you can bet that they're, that they're thinking it. You have to realize that South Carolina obviously doesn't have the same expectations as Florida, but they like to t- think they like to take the idea of home field advantage to an entirely different level. They play very differently at home than they do on the road. So that's going to be a very tough game. Then obviously LSU, a far more talented team than Kentucky was. That's another road game. That's a probable loss. Missouri's 5-0, guys. That's not going to be an easy game. It could be very cold there on the road there. Um, FSU coming to the swamp. That's going to be a very tough game for Florida. And Arkansas, I'm not sure that's a win. They, they fought LSU tooth and nail for four quarters. I'm not, I'm, that's not a guaranteed win for Florida. So you could very well be looking at four and eight. I don't think that that's going to be what happens. I do think Florida will win at least one more game out of that, but there's a very real chance Florida won't make a bowl game this year. And there's a very real chance that if Florida does at six and six, they'll lose that bowl game because of all the opt-outs that always happen in bowl season. And we'll be looking at a second straight losing season for Florida. So that's all very, very possible for Florida. Now it's not us being doomsday or pessimist or negative Nancy's just looking at the rest of the opponents, knowing how Florida has played on the road under Billy Napier and the talent disparity with a team like LSU and Georgia. It's, it's very, very realistic to think that Florida goes five and seven. Yeah, no, it's, it is possible because if you look at the schedule, we obviously don't play two ranked teams until Georgia, the two next two are, are, are non-ranked, but of course Florida has had awful luck on the road when in going on the road there. But then you look at November, you've got Arkansas, who isn't a bad team. They're certainly competent. Then, of course, now you've got LSU, Missouri, and Florida State all ranked and Georgia ranked. So you've got four ranked teams. At this point, I would assume none of them will be favored in. Well, we we are now opening up as a 17-point favorite at home next week against Vanderbilt. And then on the road against South Carolina, we said last week, for, I haven't looked at the updated FPI, but we're underdogs according to the FPI in that game. And then Arkansas were a slight favorite at home. And, I mean, yes, we played well at home. So, yeah, I mean, you look at that, that's two more wins. That gets us to that five. And then you have to pick off one of those four or one of the other ones that I mentioned. So you either got to go on the road and beat a South Carolina team on the road where you haven't done well, or you got to go, you got to beat Jackson, you go to Jacksonville, beat Georgia, LSU, Missouri on the road, or Florida State at home. So one of those four. I don't know, guys. That that seems like a pretty tall task. And based on what we've seen, that's going to be very difficult. I do think Florida finds a way to get to six. I, I think they find a way to get three more wins in some way, shape, or form, I think they do win this weekend at home against Vanderbilt. It wouldn't surprise me if they beat South Carolina, but as of right now, 
Oh, it would. It would shock me if they beat South Carolina. It wouldn't surprise it me. It would absolutely stun me. If no, I don't. Neil, I don't think so because I think Neil and and I know you have your thing, your things with South Carolina. I don't think that's a good football team either. I think that they have the advantage of the fact that they're playing at home. And Spencer Rattler is a pretty good quarterback that can go win them the game and cause issues for Florida's defense. My thing is my thing with South Carolina and their fans has nothing to do with this. I look at Florida's issues on the road. Florida's offensive line, South Carolina's offensive line is terrible. Florida's isn't really much better. And watching our defensive line last week, I don't know that we take advantage of it. So so let me ask you this. Better chance to win on the road, South Carolina or Missouri? For Florida? Yes. I still don't think Missouri's played the type of competition yet that we can really fairly gaze. They did beat K-State. But I, I say – Missouri slightly, but not not by much. I think that the, those are both losses for Florida. And I'll put it this way: it would it would absolutely stun me if we beat South Carolina. It would surprise me if we beat Missouri. Okay. All right, Dustin. What are your thoughts on on, on the rest of the schedule? Yeah, so you guys know. I mean, we already talked about the model. I mean, I haven't I haven't done the update yet. My expectation, based on looking at it right now. I think there's really only going to be two teams that we play the rest of the season that are power ranked ahead of Florida. And that would be Vanderbilt, of course, and South Carolina. Right. I, I mean, and then South Carolina is a road game. So if you think about it, that there's obviously a home field advantage uh, add on to South Carolina's total. So really, I, the only game that I think the model is going to favor Florida in is probably that Vanderbilt game. Now, if you get right down to it, my gut says we win at least one, or we win we win one of the Georgia and Florida. Well, the model also has uh, we'll, we'll also have Arkansas, uh, Arkansas powering the head of Florida, but obviously home field for Florida. Florida's probably going to win that game it, as soon, because it's at home. But if you really think about it, hey. Florida's got a 50% chance against Missouri, 50% chance against South Carolina. Florida's probably only winning one of them, right? Then you you have to expect Florida to beat Arkansas, which isn't a done deal, beat Vanderbilt, which isn't a done deal. And then you got to hope for an upset against a Florida State team. I think it's almost impossible for Florida to beat LSU in that stadium. It's almost impossible to beat Georgia. So you got to hope for the upset against FSU. I mean, we, we may come into that game at the end of the season, and Florida might be um, vying for six and six and for an opportunity to beat one of the best teams in the country and really upset them and, and, and break their hearts. I think that's honestly Florida's best path to a bowl game. I think it does entail beating FSU because, honestly, I don't remember the last time I've seen a team be this – this diametrically opposed in terms of where they are on the competent and incompetent scale on on their home field versus away from their home field. I don't remember the last time Florida was this good at home and this bad on the road. I mean, well, Charlotte wasn't great, but I mean, the defense was great and they beat a, a near top 10 team in Tennessee at home and they got absolutely smoked by a mediocre Kentucky team. By the way, keep your eye on Kentucky the rest of the year. They will lose at least four games. That's my prediction. They'll finish eight and four at, at absolute best with Georgia, uh, Tennessee, uh, Missouri, and Louisville on the schedule and South Carolina. So they will lose at least four of those games. Anyway, 
I don't remember the last time Florida has been this good at home and this bad on the road. And so you got to take care of the games on your home field, which is going to be Vanderbilt, who you should be anywhere you play them. Arkansas, I mean, that's not a guarantee. It's probably like a 70-30 proposition that Florida beats them. They have a good quarterback. They don't have really a ton else to hang their hat on. Um, and then FSC, you got to hope your crowd can win you another game the way it did against Tennessee. Because I, I really, at this point, I have absolutely zero faith that Florida will win another game on the road until they actually do. Because Texas A&M last year was bad for the first half and only because they were starting a true freshman quarterback who showed his warts and I think his first start ever with a program that we now see the depth of the issues that they have only because of all that. And a top five pick of QB was Florida able to survive that one. So we'll just we'll have to see. But until further notice, any any game outside the swamp to me is going to be chalked up as an L until they prove otherwise. I agree. And Dustin, we'll look forward to seeing your model and its update later this week whenever that comes out. All yeah, right. So, guys, I think we can agree that it's probably five and seven is probably the expected outcome for the season and then picking off an upset to get to six and six. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, I think that's the the consensus here is that it's likely five and seven or six and six right now, which is a shame because a couple of weeks ago we were talking about an eight nine win season on that based on how we were feeling after the Tennessee game. But clearly, maybe Vegas knows something with that five and a half expected win total. Maybe they were onto something. They tend to be pretty good at this stuff. That's why they uh, <laughs> that's why they are still in business over there. All right, final grades, verdict time, guys. Give me your grades for offense, defense, special teams, and coach. We have gone and discussed all of the issues that we saw. Not a lot of positives at all to draw. I'm fairly confident we're going to see a lot of failures in this department. But Dustin, lead us off. Give us your grades for those four areas. Offense, I'm going to have to give Florida a D. I thought, it, I mean, Graham Mertz played he was serviceable. He was efficient, about 80% through the air. We we just weren't able to run the ball. And because of the way that Napier schemed this system, we have to be able to run the ball in order to win the game. And for that reason, I got to give offense a D. Defense, I mean, we, we were not able to stop their run. Kentucky stopped our run. We weren't able to stop their run. And therefore, defense, I would say, gets a D. Certainly, I, I liked how we defended Kentucky's pass for the most part. I thought we stopped them for the most part, which is why I'm not failing them outright. But certainly, certainly defense gets a D. Special teams, C. They, they didn't play horrible. I know we didn't get the chance to see Smack kick it a ton. But... I mean, again, we find the special teams doing what they did. Uh, very unfortunate. The, the part where, where you look at a failure is the coach. Billy Napier, I'm giving him an F. Great guy. Love what he's doing. We've already said that. But football is a tough game. And coaching football in the SEC is a tough job. And it's a results business. And we look, we've talked about the results off the field. Great job with recruiting. But on the field matters too. And we did not get the job done. And, and that that didn't start Saturday at noon. That started during the week of preparation. So for that reason, and overall, I, I would give Florida a D minus. About a D minus, about a 
about a 62-63. All right. Neil, do you want me to go or do you want to go? I mean, you know it's coming. All right, we'll just go quick. Offense, F. Everything, and this entails everything from, from the lazy roots receivers run to Mertz not seeing the receivers who are open to the offensive line being terrible to the, just everything. For, by the way, here, here's a fun fact. I forgot to mention this in my offensive um, analysis earlier. Travis, or not Travis, Trevor ETN had 11 carries, 29 yards. On, on seven of those 11 carries, he was either hit in the backfield or had to evade a defender in the backfield seven of the 11 times he carried the football that's how bad the offensive line was and again not just one guy not just a all right offensive guard he's not doing his job not just a richie leonard gotta bench him nope 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 nope. whole offensive line awful f f f f defense f that f really really bad to know that kentucky has only one method of reliably moving the football down the field running the ball you know it's coming. You you scheme for it well. You're again, you can nitpick a couple of defensive play calls here and there, but for the most part, you're in the right position to stop it. And you just get absolutely bodied for 60 minutes by a team that does not recruit the same level of talent as you. That F. Um special teams is gonna be tough because the penalty was costly, but like at the same time, that's an effort play. He's trying his best to make something happen. It's not one of the penalties like of, of the pre-snap variety where you just lose your mind or having two guys wearing the same jersey never run out on the field. It's not one of those penalties of pure stupidity. It's just a, a young kid trying his hardest to make a play and just in his overzealousness made a costly mistake. But I mean, we did block a kick. And then, of course, we're not able to outrun their kicker down the field for, for two points and, and steal two points that way. That's just, just the icing on top of the cake. I'll, I'll give them a I'll give them a C. Crawshaw was good. I mean, we didn't get any kicks blocked. We didn't try to return any punts inside our own five this yard line. Of course, we didn't force too many punts, but the punts I thought we did force. There were no catastrophic mistakes there. Um, coaching is going to get an outright zero. Goose egg, zil, nothing, no points out of 100. Because, yes, Austin Armstrong did his job, or I, I thought for the most part, on the on the defensive side of the ball. Napier brings us down to a zero all by himself. And it's a it's a collaborative effect from go all the way back to the, the first game he coached with you know, with the, the Utah game where he messes up that end-of-game scenario there and gets bailed out by a Cam Rising interception. He has too much on his plate. He cannot reliably call the offense and oversee everything else in game. He just can't do it. And now we have a tangible result that we can point to as one of the most embarrassing performances in Gator history, certainly in recent Gator history that we can point to as a result of him insisting that he oversee everything. So I will say this very, very clearly one time to cap the show. I'm a big fan of Billy Napier. Obviously, a fan of the Florida Gators, too. So I say this as a fan of, of both sides here. Coach Napier, and I know people in the Florida offices listen to this, by the way. I know that for a fact. So whoever, you know, whichever the person is that happens to be the one to get a hold of this, please, please forward this to Coach Napier. I'm a big fan of yours. I want you to succeed here. You've got to make changes, and you've got to make the right changes. Not a yes-man hire. You've got to do this. 
You've got to hire an offensive coordinator. You've got to eliminate the two offensive line coach experiment, and you've got to hire a special teams coordinator. Please, for your own good, I'm begging you, if you want to survive here, please make these changes for all of our sakes. We, all three of us, are big fans of you on this show. We want you to succeed, but you have to want it yourself, and you have to show that you want it yourself, not just say it in pressers, but you have to show that you want it yourself by making the adjustments that are clearly needed in order for you to survive here. So balls in your court, Billy. We want you to succeed, but you got to do what you got to do here. Absolutely. Well, as my grades are going to go offense, I'm going to agree with Neil F. It, your identity is running the football and we were dominated at the point of attack. And I, and I did not realize that stat about ETN seven of the 11 carries and the hit in the backfield. Mm-hmm. That's awful. And that just goes to show how poor of a performance it was. Or eluded. So maybe, you know what, maybe he gets a point there too, for, because he, he 29 yards, he earned every single inch of it. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So, but either way, that, that it's, it just shows how bad the offensive line was, how bad we performed on the offensive side of the ball. And that for that reason, they get an F for me. And, and and the other thing is, it doesn't matter that Grammar's through 244 yards because, as we've seen in all of his better passing games, it's actually – he throws less and we run the ball more is when we win. So that's that's really what it comes down to. Defense, F, the first fail of the year for them. It's unfortunate. It was a bad performance when you missed that many tackles. And, and, and when you're actually in the position to make the tackle – as Brandon Seiler said, make the you-know-what tackle. We didn't do that in this game. We did not do that. And that is unacceptable to allow a guy to run for 280 yards on your on your defense. That's gonna, that's why you get a failure for this one. Special teams. I'm going to go C. I think they played. They are showing signs of improvement in some areas, the kicking game, the punting game. We're starting to block some kicks. But, of course, costly play on the punt penalty by Dejon Johnson, which led to the Ray Davis touchdown one play later. And now finally for coaching. Coaching gets an F, and they get that F. This was an awful performance by the coaching staff, the game plan. They knew what Kentucky wanted to do, and they had no answer to stop it in running the football. And uh, conversely, on the defensive side, they loaded the box, and we had no answer for them really in the pass game. I love the fact that we actually had some downfield shots in this game, and we hit a couple of them. Uh, Caleb Douglas being one, we hit one to Ricky Pearsall down on the crossing route that led to the touchdown. But we did not do anything on the third and long situations, and some of the play calling was incredibly questionable in those situations where we were running the football on third and long. We needed more to get to the sticks. And it's just, you know, Billy Napier was coined the phrase scared money don't make money. And right now he is playing scared. He is absolutely playing scared with his play calling and the way he's game planning for these games. And until he changes, he's going to see a lot more failures moving forward this season. All right, guys. Well, I think that about does it. It was a great show in terms of recapping what we saw, what what the issues are and where we need to go. It's going to be a long season. We'll be here through it all, bringing you all the news, the action, and be on the lookout for the updated and all kinds of weather forecaster 
from Dustin later this week. And we will bring you a preview for homecoming against Vanderbilt as the Gators look to bounce back against an SEC opponent and exact revenge on the Vanderbilt Commodores for the loss last season. So from all of us here at the In All Kinds Weather Forecast, I was your host, Chris Yanes, Neil Shulman, Dustin Smith. Have a great rest of your night and go Gators.